0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, and I'm
0: Tracy V. Wilson. And Tracy, I have a question for you. Sure.
1: When you were a kid, did you love the uh, freebies that came in cereal?
0: Well, my mother had very strong opinions on which cereals were appropriate. <laughs> So many of the cereals that were sold with toys in them were not also cereals we were allowed to eat.
1: Oh, that makes me so sad. So uh, in case some of our listeners do not know, uh, sometimes cereal, particularly cereal aimed at kids, will sometimes come with a toy or another novelty item in the box as part of like a marketing promotion to boost sales. And I lived for that stuff as a kid. And I might still live for that stuff as an adult. Uh My husband and I collect a lot of crazy things and toys and like you put a Star Wars pen in a box and we'll be eating that cereal for however long it takes to get all the pens. But this is not a new concept, particularly from about the middle of the 20th century onward the serial wars sort of really started to heat up and different promotions were tried to outdo one another. And at one point in the mid-20th century, one very famous company had a very wacky plan to actually dole out land deeds as part of a serial promotion. And that's what we're going to talk about today.
0: Sergeant Preston of the Yukon was a radio show from the 50s, and then it made this transition into television. It starred actor Dick Simmons as the sergeant, and the radio version had featured voice actor Paul Sutton. There was also a husky dog named Yukon King and a trusty horse named Rex, and the show's exploits were usually about exciting adventures, most commonly with the sergeant of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police taking his team of sled dogs through the Yukon in pursuit of some bad guys. This TV series ran on CBS TV from 1955 to 1958, and it was sponsored by Quaker Oats.
1: So the actual attribution of uh, who had this idea for this extremely novel promotion is a little bit fuzzy because different versions of the story uh, credit different people. In some versions, ad executive Bobby Smith came up with the idea, for example... His biography credits him. Uh, sometimes it's said that it's actually Smith's son uh, who gave him the idea. And in yet other tellings of the tale, it was a last minute bolt of inspiration to ad man Bruce Baker, who was a partner at ad firm Wary, Baker and Tilden, which is where Bobby Smith worked. So they're all kind of linked together, but it's not there's not entirely um, one version of the story that's uh, consistently told. There's always a little bit of wiggle in them. We
0: do know that one of these Chicago ad men came up with the brainchild of offering land deeds in cereal boxes. The previous ad campaign, which st- stated that the grains had been fired from guns, was really no longer doing it for people. The idea of guns firing the cereal was no longer appealing.
1: Yeah, and that, that is actually, uh, that ad campaign is kind of based in the chemistry of how the the puffed wheat and puffed rice came to be made in their puffed form. But uh, the other thing that Quaker was really having to deal with was that other cereal companies were cranking up their own ad campaigns and they were adding sugar to the cereal, which is something that the Quaker company was not in favor of. And they had these bouncy, cartoony mascots to try to appeal to kids So, for example, Tony the Tiger, which lives on today and we all recognize, had debuted in the early 1950s. And Kellogg's Frosted Flakes had become increasingly popular with kid consumers.
0: That part's really funny to me, because if you've heard our episode about John Harvey Kellogg, you know he was also not in favor of the sugar in the cereals.
1: Yeah, he lost control of that one. (laughs)
0: Yeah, they have this in common with my mom. In a piece written for Canadian Magazine in the 1970s by Jack McIver, Baker is the hero of this piece, racking his brain in a bathroom at 3 o'clock in the morning to try to come up with some way to salvage the Quaker account.
1: Yeah, I feel compelled to mention that I could not put my hands on an official full-text copy of this article. Uh, it's reprinted, sometimes in edited form, by multiple tourism groups in Canada, and I did find a citation for it, so we know it existed. Uh... But I never actually got the full text document from the official uh, magazine. So just know that going forward. I just wanted to acknowledge if you go looking at the show notes and you go, hey, I never found this real article. That's why.
0: Baker was interviewed for the piece, and he said that he had the idea for the giveaway while he was under pressure to come up with something that was cheap and moved cereal. Once he had the idea, he took the 5 a.m. train to Chicago, grabbed his art director and whipped up a presentation which he's said to have delivered to Quaker at 11 a.m. that same morning.
1: And the Quaker company uh had some trepidation about this whole wacky scheme. They envisioned the whole campaign becoming this nightmare of paperwork and expense as they tried to parcel out millions of tiny pieces of land, particularly to children and sort of the legal issues surrounding all of that. They really were just very hard to sell on this idea.
0: It is pretty much the only idea on the table, though. So to complete with all the sugar and all the cartoon characters, Bruce Baker and one of Quaker's executives flew to Yukon to scout out the possibility of actually bringing this wild idea to reality.
1: Yeah, they were going to tie in that whole Canadian Mountie story into this, this idea of giving away land, uh, and so once Baker and the Quaker executive landed in Canada, uh, they met with a lawyer in Whitehorse and things got a little bit smoothed over at this point because the Canadian lawyer, whose name was George Van Roggen, who incidentally went on to become a senator in Canada, uh, he advised that it was not actually going to be necessary to register each individual square inch that they intended to give away in this promotion, that they could just sell it in one large parcel. And then they're just such tiny increments. You didn't even have to bother with all of that.
0: Van Roggen was delighted to be working on a novel project instead of just drawing up people's wills and whatnot. So he helped find a lot for the visiting Americans to look at and to consider purchasing. So the men headed to Dawson City, which was a gold rush town, and then they traveled by boat upriver to inspect property in Klondike.
1: And the plot of land that they specifically looked at was Lot 40, 243, Group 2, and it was 19.11 acres. Uh, it featured 640 feet of riverfront on the west bank of the Yukon River, and it was uh, 1,301 feet deep. And the Klondike Big Inch Land Company, Incorporated, was eventually established for the purposes of this promotion, and it is that company that paid a whopping $1,000 for this tract of land. So, uh, once the land had been acquired, uh, deeds were printed, and each deed was on a seven by five inch piece of paper, and that made it 35 times larger than the actual land pieces that they represented. Uh, and the wording on these deeds was really carefully written to be entirely legal. I believe, um, Van Grogen, Van Roggen did continue to help them with this, since they were working on, you know, legal issues both in Canada and in the states where the promotion was gonna happen. And, this was a, the reason that they put so much effort into making sure every word on this piece of paper was uh, accurate and legally sound was allegedly because the cereal industry at this point had become really rather cutthroat. And they were really concerned that a competing company was going to try to like just comb through all of this uh copy that was on the document to find any incongruity or any way to call foul on this Quaker Klondike project. Uh, and consequently shut it down.
0: The deeds also made it clear that they did not come with mineral rights to the land. Nobody wanted anybody to be showing up looking to mine their one square inch of land for gold. The owners of these tiny parcels also had to allow for easement, which is accessed by other people who might need to find their one-inch plot. So basically it made it so that the deed holder's property could be stepped on without legal recourse.
1: On January 27th of 1955, this promotion began and they ran ads, of course, on the television show. But papers across the United States also ran ads touting that purchases of Quaker puffed wheat or Quaker puffed rice could lead to the ownership of actual Yukon land. And these tiny land grabbers could fill out a form and they could send it in with a box top. And in return, they would receive one of these deeds that had been so carefully uh compiled, issued by the Klondike Big Inch Land Company, and that entitled the holder to one square inch of Klondike land.
0: There was a whole lot of romance around the marketing of all of this. The promotion copy touted, In the gold rush, men fought the wildest country on Earth and the most savage of climates to get to the Klondike where your land is. During the winter, the only way to the gold fields was by mushing for week after week the more fortunate were aided by dog teams pulling sleds. No one knows how many brave men died along the frozen Yukon River that runs past your land.
1: Uh, And there was also a map of the Yukon Territory in these ads, and it had this arrow that pointed to a spot in the words, deed makes you owner of land right here, (laughs) which just delighted me and sent me into fits of laughter when I saw it. Uh, also included was a brief description of how a lust for gold had driven men into this wilderness, hoping to strike it rich. And there were heroic descriptions of the Mounties uh, that patrolled this land and how they always get their man. So that also tied in with the television show.
0: Additional wording included talk of the harsh cold, the dangerous grizzly bears and wolves, and the moose and caribou that might traipse across your land. The phrase, your land, was consistently used in all the promotional materials, drawing kids into the sales push with this empowering language that sparked their young imaginations.
1: And it is no surprise that this campaign worked like gangbusters. Stores were actually having this problem where they would sell out of their puffed cereal stock each day. And kids were begging their parents to purchase multiple boxes so that they could grow their land holdings. And I can't help but think of like kids lying on their beds dreaming about the huge plots of territory they were slowly amassing through these minuscule little one-inch deeds.
0: In the first month of the campaign, Quaker received tens of thousands of box-top requests. But then there was a snag. In February 1955, just weeks after the campaign had kicked off, the Ohio Securities Division, uh, Quaker had a large operations center in Ohio, ruled that the company could not legally trade a box-top for a deed to Yukon Land without a state license to sell foreign territory.
1: And so at this point, the promotion was really in full swing, and it was already seeing incredible success. And so Quaker did not want to shut this down. So instead of uh, halting the promotion and distribution so that they could wait for a license to come, the company kind of managed a little loophole. They opted instead to give away the deeds in the boxes. And because this eliminated the exchange of the box top, which could be perceived as a sales contract uh, in when it came along with the filled out coupon, this made it perfectly legal. It was a free giveaway. They weren't selling land. And it meant that this promotion could just keep right on going because it was so successful that they really did not want to stop the momentum.
0: All in all, Quaker, through the Klondike Big Inch Land Company, gave away 21 million deeds to Klondike property.
1: And while the enthusiasm for Quaker puffed cereals and their uh, gateway to property ownership was still fresh in the minds of kids, there was actually a second tie-in promotion that came up because as they were running out of their land deeds, they wanted to kind of keep things going. So kids could then mail in 25 cents to uh, the Klondike Big Inch Land Company and they would receive what was called a small, quote, poke pouch of genuine Yukon dirt. Uh, and Van Roggen was also in, involved in this as well. He assisted in the acquisition of this dirt. He basically had like a, a business acquaintance kind of sift up um, smooth sand from the bottom of the Yukon River. And he made it clear like there couldn't be anything, no pebbles in it, no um, nothing dangerous. It really just had to be the cleanest possible sand. And then they had to have this soil and sand trucked to Alaska because they couldn't mail it from Canada without a lot of postal complications. So the postmark was actually from Alaska and not from uh, Yukon territory, but no one seemed to mind. And in one interview, I noticed that uh, Van Roggen said, like, I think a lot of Americans think Yukon is part of Alaska anyway. So nobody seemed to notice that the postmark wasn't from the area where they said that the dirt was coming from.
0: Ten years after the promotion, on January twenty second, 1965, the Klondike Big Inch Land Company was dissolved. The Canadian government took possession of the land due to non-payment of $37.20 worth of back taxes.
1: Yeah, that figure shows up in a lot of various sources, although it never says whether it's Canadian or U.S. currency. Not that there's a huge issue at that point anyway. It's such a small amount. And the Klondike Big Inch Land Company had really just been maintained kind of to deal with these various queries that people would send periodically about their land. Uh, but it really, after just a few months of this big promotion, it had ended and it wasn't really, they weren't continuing to give away deeds after that point, which is why there's that big gap between when they give away the dirt and then when the Klondike Company uh, is dissolved. And none of those individual one-inch plots were ever officially registered. So those cereal box deed holders were never really recognized as having property in the eyes of the Canadian government.
0: The land that was once owned by Quakers Klondike Holding Company has since been used for the Dawson City Golf Course.
1: So what's interesting is that uh, these... Klondike deeds continue to sort of rear their heads. Uh, the land title office in Whitehorse, Yukon, continues to get a handful of inquiries each year from people who have held on to their deeds or they found them in, you know, a family uh, box. And there was an article in the Montreal Gazette in 1986 that characterized these inquiries as pretty much come, being grouped into one of these four major types.
0: There are general inquiries wondering if the land has any value. Tax queries from people worried that they're not up to date on any taxes owned on their square-inch land parcels. Lawyers who find deeds from the Klondike Big Inch Land Company in the papers of the deceased and are trying to settle estates. And hopeful types who are wanting to know if they can rent the land for income.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, and I I wonder how this whole thing would play out if they attempted it today, where it's like, you have land, a one-inch piece of land. No, you don't, not really. Uh, I think it would maybe meet with some some bigger resistance. But um, there have also been these various wacky efforts made around these teeny parcels. At one point, there were uh, a couple of men who had a combined four square inches of land uh, and they attempted to declare it as free and independent land under the name the Republic of Xanadu, which did not really play out.
0: Another person sent Quaker string and toothpicks so they could build a fence around his property.
1: Uh, one man had, uh, three of these deeds and so he had a three, it's three square inch land parcel and it was really his intention that it should be donated and used as a national park.
0: According to Vern Thomas, a representative from Quaker's legal department in the early 1970s, one man collected deeds from all over, eventually amassing 10,880 of them. And this added up to about 75 square feet. He then tried to have the square inches consolidated so he could take possession of his tract of land. And he requested that his parcel be carved out near the water.
1: (laughs) But these were all of these various requests of what to do were pretty much met with a form letter that said, Hey, that was a promotion. You're really paying for the excitement. Uh, and in 1971, Thomas, who we have mentioned just a moment ago, told a reporter, quote, The deeds are worthless. They have never been of any value except as a promotional gimmick by our merchandising people. They really made it very clear PR going forward uh, that they were really selling the romance and the excitement of this concept, not the actual land.
0: While the official statements made by Quaker indicate that the, de- the deeds were never meant to have any intrinsic value and were really meant to just be a fun promotion. If you do still have an original certificate, it does have some value because nostalgia dealers and eBay purchasers will take them off your hands. In the last several years, the certificates have gone for anywhere from $10 to $40 on the secondary market.
1: And in the early 2000s, uh, a man named David McDonald, who had collected several of the deeds on the mini plots as a child, and he held on to them into adulthood. And a lot of people did. There were people that really squirreled these away, uh, you know, in their safe papers, thinking that they were going to pay off one day. Uh, But David McDonald set out to make a documentary about the Klondike land and the Quaker company's ad campaign after he had inquired uh with the Canadian government about the whole thing and got the same form letter as everyone else.
0: When McDonald started researching his film, he discovered that many kids just like him had grown up hanging on to their deeds in the hopes that one day they would make some money off of them. And those adult kids or sometimes their families in the cases where the original deed holders have died were told by Quaker that they had no actual Yukon property.
1: Yeah, I tried to hunt down a chance to see McDonald's film, which is called Serial Thriller, but I did not manage to um, to get to see it, which is a big fooey on my part because it sounded so fun. I just love this idea that there, were, there was such an odd little giveaway. Like, here's some land for you, but not really. Uh, I, you'll often hear it or see it written up uh, in the various articles that have come up through the years because periodically they will sort of rise to the top. Someone will make an inquiry and get very irritated and say, I was promised land, but and they'll get the form letter. This is not really... I think Quaker wishes this had never happened. Like, <laughs> it was very good for sales uh, at the time, but it really has been kind of an ongoing pain in the tuchus for them. Yeah, they, kind of, Like I said, they continue to get mail every year from people thinking that it's time to cash in on their land.
0: Yeah, It reminds me of, a, I think it was a soft drink promotion within the last decade or so, in which people were going to send in bottle tops and you know the more bottle tops they could get bigger prizes and as a joke in the ad there was one that was a like a fighter jet or something and that cost 14 million bottle tops or something and people actually took it seriously and tried to get that many bottle tops to get their fighter jet
1: yeah, that's crazy. If it's the promotion I'm thinking of, I think they capped the number of bottle top. Like you had to digitally enter it, and they capped the number you could enter each week, so that you could really never get to the magical number to cash in. Uh, but yeah, it's it's one of those things. People love a free giveaway. I love freebies as much as anybody. I send away for all the crazy stuff because it cracks me up when it comes in the mail. But it's one of those things where you ki- most people kind of go into it knowing. This isn't really worth wild stuff. Like it has no actual value. It's just fun.
0: Yeah. Or like uh, if you if you adopt a wild animal at a wild animal preserve. That doesn't belong to you.
1: <laughs> you you don't get to go pet that animal. <laughs> no, it will bite your face. We don't want that. I'm just I I laugh so hard with people thinking about their one inch of land and what they're gonna do with it.
0: I actually kind of like the guy who tried to make the, the 75 feet of land be a real thing. Because you could build a tiny house on that, be pretty happy out in the middle of nowhere.
1: Yeah. There was allegedly, uh, I didn't research it deeply. I saw it in my research and didn't look terribly hard at it. There was allegedly a game show at one point that had people try to find the square inches like, a specific square inch of one of these deeds, like, as, like, the challenge of the game show. Like, this wasn't the regular thing. It was a random challenge as part of their regular series of challenges. But uh, they had laid out the parcel of land where basically they just did, like, a simple numbering scheme where they started at, like, the top left corner of the land, if you were looking at it on a map, and went, you know, one through however far it could go by inches and then started a second row and just kind of went chronologically. So theoretically, people that went looking for their particular inch, because each inch was numbered on these certificates, could theoretically find it. But to the best of anyone's knowledge, no one ever actually did that. Like no one ever pinpointed their one square inch of land. It makes me almost want to go looking for one of the, the certificates just for my own collection of weird things because it's so funny but you can see images of the certificates online uh, and we will link to some of those in the show notes and also uh, one of the things I wanted to mention that will be in the show notes is um, um, the commercial for Quaker where they talk about the serial being shot out of guns because it's quite wacky cartoon featuring a cannon and some uh, kind of revolutionary style costuming and it's worth a look. Uh, but now we're going to move on to uh, Listener mail, And this comes to us. It is about our Suleiman the Magnificent episode. And it comes to us from a listener named Suleiman. Uh, and he says, Greetings, ladies. Finally, an episode where I have something to add. I have so many connections to your last episode on Suleiman the Magnificent. First among them, my name is also Suleiman. I was named partially after this sultan. It's strange to hear my name spoken so often not about me, as I almost never run into anyone with that name. I also was fortunate enough to visit Istanbul when I was a boy and later would live in Vienna for five months in college for a study abroad. You briefly mentioned that Suleiman's architect made two mosques in Istanbul. I was able to visit both and have some interesting facts about the Suleimani Mosque. It is a very large mosque which has six minarets or towers for calling to prayer. This number is very high and strange. Our tour guide told us that this was because Suleiman had actually asked his architect to make gold minarets. At the time, however, the words for gold and for six were either the same or very similar. And Suleiman's architect, knowing that someday the city might be sacked and gold towers would be destroyed for the value, decided to make six instead. From what I remember, Mimar Sinan had a host of other architectural innovations and works that would make him a great podcast topic. Uh, I love the show and really enjoy the way YouTube present material. I would love a podcast on the history of cookbooks. Julia Child, one of my heroes, has a small video on this, which I find hilarious. I also love Julia Child. And as a random factoid, there is, I think it no longer exists. There used to be a video game online, an MMO, in which you could hear my voice in one of the way background characters where you would concoct things for your costumes doing a very bad julia child impersonation Uh, that's awesome (laughs) because i love julia child and i used to watch her episode with the chicken sisters over and over but that is so cool Suleiman. one that you have a connection to uh, our episode by name and two i certainly would never have known the gold and six combo uh of you know sort of language juggling on the part of the architect which is so fun so if you would like to write to us with any such fascinating facts or to talk about Julia Child, which I will happily do at any time, <laughs> you can write to us at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also connect with us at Facebook.com slash history, on Twitter at mistinhistory at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and on Pinterest.com slash Uh, If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parent website, and type in the words owning property in the search bar and uh, you'll come up with an article that is how to find out who owns a property. Uh, unfortunately, since none of these individual people were registered for their Klondike property, they would not show up in such a an investigation. Uh, if you would like to visit us at MistInHistory.com, you can do so. You'll find our episodes, show notes, and all kinds of goodies. Uh, and you should visit us Or, if you have a hankering for other knowledge outside of history or otherwise, you can look that up at our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For
0: more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.